0: Well, please turn your Bibles to Acts 7. It's really neat that God reveals himself to us. He reveals himself to us, and we, don't, we weren't even seeking him. We didn't even know him. And he opened our eyes to recognize his handiwork in the skies. Uh, it says, David, he called the stars the work of God's fingers. And that we can just lift up our eyes and see God's signature. We can see his handiwork in the world that he's made And uh, his presence isn't confined to a building. It's not earned by sacrifice of the pious, but he, by his grace, reveals himself to us. And uh, I think about famous musicians or artists, authors, athletes, those who make a public appearance, right? They do so for a fee. And if you were to be able to meet with them privately, it would be even more exclusive and expensive. But God has chosen to meet with us publicly and privately. He has come to us. He wants to spend time with us. He wants us to know him. He speaks and meets with us personally, and he's so much more amazing and worthy than any artist or, or really skilled person that we might admire. So this passage we're at today, it's the largest message, a uh, single message in one pat portion given by stephen so he gives quite a long address we'll address it over the next two weeks here's a man who was filled with the holy spirit and wisdom he hadn't only met with god but the the spirit of god dwelt within him so he had the presence of god within him and he had been slandered by those as blasphemy blaspheming against the law and against the temple It said that they could not resist the words that he spoke. There was no way to oppose them logically. He had them. He was speaking the truth and there was really no way they could attack it. And so they arrested him and hoped to slander him as they did Christ. And as he stood before the Sanhedrin, instead of seeking to defend himself from their claims, he sought to glorify God and to kind of bring the Jews back to their roots and say, let's look at the history. And he begins to point out Uh, God's revelation to them and their typical response. Was it usually good? No. Typically, when God revealed himself, the person that he chose was not respected or received. There There were difficulties. And so we'll get into that. You guys like a good plot twist? You're watching a movie or something happens. You're like, whoa, that was unexpected. That's kind of cool. Now, do you like that when it happens in your life? I don't think so. I don't like it. I like things to be pretty linear and straight, uh, straightforward and so I can be prepared. But God often does not work that way. He will work in a very roundabout way that's leading us directly to his end, but it's not the way we would have chosen. It's not the way we could have predicted. And yet at the end, we look back and we can say, God was with me all that time. God was preparing me. God was providing for me. God was working in me something that I could not have gained by going my way because God did that. Even when it feels like we're going in circles, we're not accomplishing anything, uh, because God has revealed himself to us, we can trust him. We can know that in his time and his way, he will accomplish everything he has set out to do. Let's just pray and give this time to him. Dear Father, thank you that you our, our Father who loves us, who have you have revealed yourself to us, and you have been faithful all along. Lord, it's I who have been unfaithful. We have not kept our word, but you have kept your word. We have lost hope, but you have kept pursuing us and kept speaking to us, and you have been good. And so I pray, Lord, you would open our eyes to see that we would... Uh, Look back upon this address by Stephen and take it to heart that we wouldn't lose heart in what seems to be a sidetrack or impossible obstacles that you are going to do it and we can trust you in Jesus' name. Amen. Having been accused of blasphemy, Acts 7, verse 1 begins, Then the high priest said, Are these things so? And he said, Brethren and fathers, listen. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he dwelt in Haran and said to him, get out of your country and from your relatives and come to a land that I will show you. Then he came out of the land of the Chaldeans and dwelt in Haran. And from there, when his father was dead, he moved him to this land in which you now dwell. Having been given this opportunity to defend himself, Stephen probably answers this in a way they would not have expected because he's not talking about. The claims are, well, he said this, but I really said that. and he's not. He just says, well, brethren, listen. God revealed himself to Abraham. He starts at the beginning. He talks about the covenant and the promises that God had made, that God gave them an inheritance. And he kept his word to them even through trials, as we'll see. And he started with, brethren and fathers, listen. And this is so significant because here is a Hellenist He was Stephen was a Christian brought up in a Greek culture. He spoke Greek. He he was not the Orthodox kind of Jew or one that would even be acceptable by them. But he says, we have something in common. We share the same father. And he says, he came to them as brethren, as a father. So he's entreating them. He's not telling them how things are. He's seeking to broach this with them gently and kindly. There's a humility and a love here. He he identifies with them as family, though he was falsely accused by them. He gives a defense of the gospel. He, He wasn't concerned about defending himself, but glorifying God. And he says, the God of glory appeared to Abraham before the temple, before the law. The things that the Jews really prided themselves in, how they kept the law, how they were God's special people, how they had built this temple. Remember, they had said, oh, he's going to destroy this temple, that Jesus is going to ruin it. And that's not what he said, but that was those were fighting words, and they wanted to uh, attack him for it. So before the Jews existed, before Israel was a nation, God appeared to Abraham. Hebrews 11.8, it says, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance, Anyone out not knowing where he was going. It's amazing. Abraham went. Stephen, through the Spirit, in verse 4, in Acts chapter 7, we see that it was God who moved Abraham. Did you see that? The capital He says, Then he came out of the land of the Chaldeans and dwelt in Haran, and from there, when his father was dead, he moved him. To this land in which you now dwell. Abraham cooperated with God, but it was God who prompted and enabled Abraham to do what God had told him to do at the beginning. So God's hand is in this. God moves us out to move us in. Abraham needed to leave his country and his house, he had to obey the Lord, and God helped him obey the Lord. And God of Abraham would make a nation through which would spring salvation for all people. That's pretty grand. That's epic. When God reveals himself to us, know that there will be a step of faith required to follow him. Do you see that as consistent throughout scripture and even your own life? When God reveals himself to you, there will be a step of faith involved to follow him. It was truth, Christ. And we can look in our lives and say, well, yeah, that is true. On our own strength, we cannot take the step. Nor will it seem reasonable. It probably seemed very unreasonable that he would leave his home and his family and what was familiar to him and go to a place where he didn't even know where he was going. But like Abraham, we can count on God. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. He'll provide, he'll protect, and he'll bring us to that place he wants us to be. Verse 5, And God gave him no inheritance in it, not even enough to set his foot on. But even when Abraham had no child, he promised to give it to him for a possession and to his descendants after him. But God spoke in this way, that his descendants would dwell in a foreign land, that they would bring them into bondage and oppress them 400 years. And the nation to whom they will be in bondage I will judge, said God, And after that, they shall come out and serve me in this place. Then he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham begot Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac begot Jacob, and Jacob begot the twelve patriarchs. As we're reading through this, please pay attention to how often the, the conjunction but is used. Many times. And that points to a contrast. You have a statement, and then but... Now there's a contrary idea. It's something that does not follow what was said previously. So it says God God said I'm going to give you an inheritance. But then he didn't give him an inheritance. And it said but even when Abraham had no child he promised to give it to his descendants. So he didn't know where he was going. God directed him. It says I'm going to give you an inheritance, but it's not for you, it's for your children when he didn't have a child. So that seems contrary, right? And it says, they're going to be a nation, but God spoke in this way. They're going to be oppressed for a hundred years. So you have this time. And like, how could that be? We'll see that happens many times in this passage. Hebrews 11.1, 1, it says, now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And if we have seen the great and living God, we can recognize he is able to do impossible things, things that we cannot fathom, and in ways that we cannot fathom. And when we think it's most unlikely, that is when he can work his wonders. Abraham believed what God said. He didn't see any evidence for decades how this would play out, but he took God at his word and kept obeying. The priests, Pharisees, and scribes to whom Stephen spoke took great pride in the law, in their temple, in their ceremonies, and the covenant marked with circumcision. The meaning behind circumcision uh, was that you had agreed to follow the covenant of God. And so as a parent, if you're saying, hey, we are going to be following God, then that was something that you would do with your males on the eighth day. So a male child, and if you were a foreigner who wanted to To convert to Judaism, you also had to be circumcised because it was a sign in your flesh that you were going to follow God, that you were going to adhere to the law, that when you sinned against God, it meant the sacrifice of animals. Blood had to be shed for atonement. Abraham, he circumcised himself, Ishmael, Isaac, before the Mosaic law, before it was put in writing, and we put a big emphasis on putting things in writing, right? Because that means it's going to hold. Well, Abraham took God at his word. God had not put it in writing yet, and Abraham obeyed God. And he put his own body on the line, and the bodies of his children on the line, in obedience to God. Nobody in those days was circumcised. It's likely it had never entered into Abraham's mind to do. Right? It's not like he's like, oh, this could be a good idea. You? I, I would never have thought that. But he took a blade to himself and everyone in his household because they were committed to do all that God told them, even when it involved pain and discomfort. Are you willing to do what God asks, even if it involves pain and discomfort? I love that Abraham did not afflict his flesh so that God might reveal himself. He did so because God already had revealed himself. God already had spoken to him. God showed himself to him. And in a response to it, Abraham obeyed because he believed. It wasn't so that God's word would come true. He was trying to earn favor with God. No, he believed God. And so he obeyed him. Abraham, he found his comfort in God, so he was willing to leave his family. He was willing to become a pilgrim without a country and to be circumcised, and his sons, and his servants at God's command. We're under no biblical requirement to circumcise today, but in the law, this outer work was a picture of what God wanted to do inside. It says in Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may live. There's such a blessing and a benefit for those who love God and to our descendants after us, to those who follow on in the faith. And that's something you don't have control over. When you bring someone to faith in Christ by his grace, you can't say how their life is going to work out. When you have children of your own, or you adopt children, as Pastor Stephen has, you can't guarantee what they're going to do. But when we love the Lord, there is a blessing that God will bring to our descendants forever. Acts 7, verse 9. And the patriarchs, becoming envious, sold Joseph into Egypt. But God was with him, and delivered him out of all his troubles, and gave him favor and wisdom in the presence of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And he made him governor over Egypt and all his house. Now a famine and great trouble came over all the land of Egypt and Canaan, and our fathers found no sustenance. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our fathers first. And the second time Joseph was made known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to the Pharaoh. Then Joseph sent and called his father Jacob and all his relatives to him, 75 people. So Jacob went down to Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham bought for a sum of money from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem. From Abraham came Isaac, from Isaac, Jacob. Joseph was the eldest son of Rachel, especially loved by Jacob. And out of envy, his brothers sold him to slave traders and was brought to Egypt and it says but God was with him that's a cool contrast you know betrayed by your own family sold into slavery and then but God was with him his own brothers envied him they hated him but God did not forsake him And being sold was only the first of many things that Joseph would endure. As a slave, he was falsely accused of rape. He was thrown into prison. He was forgotten about. It seemed that all had forgotten about him. Yet years later, God would use a fellow inmate during his time in prison to bring word to Pharaoh that he had the ability through God to interpret dreams. So he's brought out and made second in command of all Egypt. You cannot make this stuff up. This is, Hollywood has nothing on this. And if you keep going, you're like, whoa, this is phenomenal. This is amazing. God had made this promise to Abraham's descendants, but they were starving. They were looking for food and they found none. And so then they went to Egypt, where Joseph happened to be, where he's now the ruler, and he, the one they hated, not only saved Egypt, but preserved his own family alive. So he was used by God to save the people who hated him and wanted him dead. Jacob and all those with him, 75 people, which agrees with the Septuagint. That's the Greek translation of the Old Testament, completed in 2nd century B.C. that Stephen would have been quoting from. Jacob ends up dying in Egypt. He's buried in the tomb Abraham bought and had been buried in. The bones of Joseph and his brothers, they were buried in Shechem, as it's mentioned in Joshua 24, 32. Even when they were dead, God brought their bones out. It's just like, wow. They didn't have control over that, but God was with them, even though it was just their bones. God would be faithful and bring them out, as he said. Has God ever given you a promise you haven't seen fulfilled yet? It's one thing for God to make a promise to you, But it's amazing to know that even if we never see the fulfillment with our eyes, God will have it come to pass. Abraham didn't see the fulfillment, did he? He didn't get to see uh, his son go on to bear children and to see a nation 400 plus years come out of Egypt. But God did it. How many people have wept for revival, God promised, but they never saw? Yet, God was faithful to bring revival in His time, in the place, and in His way He had ordained. How many children have been blessed with great-great-grandparents who, who prayed and who honored God? And their children and children's children were blessed because they loved God. It says in Proverbs 27, the righteous man walks in his integrity. His children are blessed after him. Psalm 37, 25 and 26. The psalmist writes, I have been young and now am old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken, nor his descendants begging bread. He is ever merciful and lends and his descendants are blessed. Abraham was given some pretty big promises, right? He says, in you, all the nations of the world will be blessed. You think, well, how can that be? I don't even have a son. My wife is barren, and I'm impotent. How is this going to happen? But he didn't, there were times where he wondered, he says, hey, all I've got in my house is this guy. How is this going to come to pass? And God reassured him, God confirmed, and then did exactly as he said. Abraham had no idea that the Messiah, the Son of God, would come through his line. And that eternal salvation would be given to all people through faith in him. That's huge. God did even bigger than what he said. And what he said was totally impossible. And yet, we have a God who operates like that. Nothing is too hard for him. And so I encourage you, don't stop praying because you're not seeing a fulfillment that you're hoping for. You believe God has promised to you. You keep praying. You keep trusting. You keep believing and obeying. God will bring it to pass in his time. Trust him. Don't be confused or lose heart because of what you see right now. Life of Joseph, it's a perfect example of how God uses roundabout ways to bring salvation. Because the path of salvation, it rarely takes the route as the crow flies. It's not a direct path. Think about childbirth. There's a lot of pains and complications that can happen before a new life is brought into the world. If those complications do not happen. The child is not born. And we go, well, we, can we just have the birthing without pain or complications? I guess it's possible, but there's often a process that must be undergone so that we can be, cha- we can be changed through the process and be able to be whom God wants us to be. God had shown Joseph at a young age that that he was going to be a ruler. And it didn't seem possible. It didn't seem probable. And even his parents were a bit offended when he said, hey, I had this dream and, you know, the sun and the moon, they were bowing down to me. He's like, what? I'm going to bow down to you? It seemed crazy. Kind of, he was okay with his brothers bowing before him, but Jacob was a little, hmm, hold on a second. I'm going to bow before you too as a ruler? But yet that was God's way. And though he's thrown into prison, He is uh, forgotten. A dungeon seems a strange place to prepare a man to rule a nation and in doing save the very ones who wanted him dead. Seems odd, but God does not work like we think he should. And Joseph, why don't you turn to Genesis 50 verse 20. Joseph was able to look back upon his past, painful though it was, and difficult. And, Testified that God was with him the whole time. Take heart if you identify with Joseph in that way. Feeling betrayed, feeling alone, feeling like there's this calling upon my life and in the dungeon it doesn't seem to be happening. Genesis 50:20, But as for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good in order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people alive. Even when people mean evil and they do mean and evil things. God can use it for good. And bring salvation out of it. For them. I feel like I'm treading on holy ground there. There's nothing I can say. Acts 7, 17. But when the time of the promise drew near, which God had sworn to Abraham, the people grew and multiplied in Egypt till another king arose who did not know Joseph. This man dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our forefathers, making them expose their babies so they might not live. At this time, Moses was born and was well-pleasing to God, and he was brought up in his father's house for three months. But when he was set out, Pharaoh's daughter took him away and brought him up as her own son. And Moses learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and was mighty in words and deeds. Children of Israel multiplied in Egypt, but there was a Pharaoh who rose up that did not know Joseph. He did not regard him for the salvation that had been wrought under his control. He was treacherous. He oppressed the people. He commanded their babies to be killed. And instead of becoming rich in substance, like God had promised to Abraham, hey, I'm going to bring them out with a mighty hand. They're going to be rich. Um, They're oppressed. They're losing even their family. They're slaves. They have nothing. It did not look like it was being fulfilled in that day. And during this dreadful season, when the children are being slaughtered, Moses is born. And when he could no longer be hidden, his mother, it says, made a basket of reeds, put slime or pitch on it, put it in the in the river. And it was discovered by none other than the daughter of this murderous ruler, this tyrant pharaoh. She is compassionate, and she takes Moses, and she raises this Hebrew baby, which should have been committed to the depths according to the king's command, in the house of this king who wanted all the Hebrews dead. So instead of being killed, Moses is now trained in all the wisdom of Egypt. He's raised up as a prince, it says, mighty in words and deeds. Again, you cannot make this up. God's ways and his wisdom are past finding out. God raised up Joseph to be a savior of a foreign nation. God took little Moses who had been condemned to death. He trained him in the house of wicked Pharaoh and he would make him a deliverer of the people in their darkest hour. Verse 23, now when he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended and avenged himself on, excuse me, avenged him who was oppressed and struck down the Egyptian. For he supposed that his brethren would have understood that God would deliver them by his hand, but they did not understand. And the next day, he appeared to two of them as they were fighting and tried to reconcile them, saying, men, you are brethren. Why do you wrong one another? But he who did his neighbor wrong pushed him away, saying, who made you a ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you did the Egyptian yesterday? Then at this saying, Moses fled and became a dweller in the land of Midian, where he had two sons. Moses is 40 years old. God moved him to go out And look at his brethren, toiling under their burdens. He'd been raised in Pharaoh's house in appearance, in speech, in demeanor, in lifestyle. He was Egyptian in every way. But he recognized he was a Hebrew at heart that God had called to deliver the Hebrews from bondage. We see the scene that's described by Stephen in Exodus 2, 11 and 12. It says... Now, it came to pass in those days when Moses was grown that he went out to his brethren and looked at their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his brethren. So he looked this way and that way, and when he saw no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. It gives us a little different picture. You know, he goes out and he sees injustice. Oh, and he's looking around, nobody's seeing, and he just kills the guy, buries him in the sand. No one will know. I mean, the one who is getting beaten would know, but that's it. Acts 7.25, it gives us some insight by the Holy Spirit. The Exodus account does not. It said that God divinely revealed to Moses that he had been called and chosen to deliver the Hebrews. It says, he supposed they would understand. See that in verse 23. For he supposed that his brethren would have understood that God would deliver them by his hand, but they did not understand. So Moses knows. Moses, he realizes, I'm a Hebrew. I've been called by God to deliver these people. What better way to ingratiate myself to them, to show them my loyalty, my commitment, than to save them from oppression? He sees oppression. This is my time to shine. And he goes and he just beats down that Egyptian. What better way to prove that I'm a deliverer than to kill one who's oppressing? Moses assumed that God would take that linear, efficient route to deliverance. The way that looked good to him. It seemed to make perfect sense. God revealed his plan to Moses, how that, I'm going to use you in this way, but he led him on a roundabout path. Moses, he returns the next day, and I can just see him like, oh man, this is going to go good. You know, that's going to bring me favor with the people. We're going to rally, you know, with a strong hand. We're going to be brought out. Not at all. The plan of Moses, it backfired royally. The squabbling Hebrews did not accept him. They did not want him. They refused him and they daubed him in for it. He was daubed in by the people he was trying to help. Because it says in Exodus 2.15, When Pharaoh heard of this matter, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from the face of Pharaoh and dwelt in the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well. And it was at that well that Moses witnessed another injustice. These seven shepherdesses, they're coming. They're going to water their flocks. The men, they come, and they're like, get out of here. And they're shoving them away. And Moses is like, hey. He stands up for the ladies. He helps water their, their flocks. And, and the ladies got home real early that day. And Dad's like, hey, why are you guys home so soon? And they said, well, an Egyptian at the well helped us again. Moses did not look like a Hebrew. He looked like an Egyptian. They called him an Egyptian. And he says, well, why didn't you invite him home for dinner? Go get him and bring him in. I've got seven daughters, you know. (laughs) He seems like a pretty decent guy. He ends up marrying one of them, Zipporah, who bears him two sons. It occurred to me while I'm studying this, being an Egyptian, appearing to be an Egyptian did not hinder Moses in Midian didn't seem to have, uh, Jethro didn't have a problem with him being an Egyptian. But it was likely a very big problem to the Hebrews who had been oppressed by the Egyptians for, for 400 plus years. Who would have suspected a man brought up in the house of Pharaoh, trained in all the wisdom of Egypt, was the one that God had called to deliver his people? From the perspective of Moses, how could God use him As an Egyptian, or raised as an Egyptian, in the house of Pharaoh, the one hated by the people, the one responsible for killing their children, how could God use him to deliver the people? Because they wouldn't even listen to him. And how could he possibly do it for the next 40 years as he waited, tending his his father-in-law's sheep in the wilderness of Midian? It didn't seem possible. This is a very roundabout way. 40 years. I don't believe there's anyone in this congregation who's 80 years old at the moment. God willing, someday there will be. Hopefully we'll all be some of those people. Do you think Moses was tempted to doubt the revelation of God because of this roundabout path that he had him on, day after day, watching sheep in the wilderness? But he knew that God had called him to be deliverer. If I stood in Moses' sandals, it would have definitely been a temptation for me. It seemed more than unlikely he would be a deliverer of anybody. In fact, it was impossible. But God would do it and keep his word. Verse 30. And when 40 years had passed, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire in a bush in the wilderness of Mount Sinai. When Moses saw it, he marveled at the sight. And as he drew near to observe, the voice of the Lord came to him, saying, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses trembled and dared not look. Then the Lord said to him, Take the sandals off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their groaning and have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt." So when he's 80 years old, 40 years in Midian, God appears to him. doesn't say that Moses did anything to prompt this meeting, but God revealed himself to him in a very peculiar way, in a bush that appeared to be on fire, but it's not burning. I would think as a shepherd, you would be very careful to put out a fire because that's life of your animals. And Moses sees this burning bush and goes like, well, this is weird. If you've ever lit... Like for kindling, you starting a fire brush or something. You know, it goes up quick, and then it dies down almost immediately. But here's this bush that is just not going out, and it doesn't... So he draws near. And then God speaks to him from the burning bush, and it says he reverenced God. He trembled. He would not even look anymore. And then God tells him to remove the sandals from his feet because where he stood is holy ground. And why was the ground Holy. Was it just like a special holy patch? No, because God's presence was there. God made it holy because he's there. And so he did as God said. God told Moses he had seen the oppression of his people. He had heard their groaning, and he was going to send him to Egypt to deliver them. And I imagine this is not what Moses expected to hear on this morning or in that day when he woke up. Did Moses cheer and say, right on, God? Finally, we're seeing the fulfillment of what you promised all that time ago. For the next two chapters in Exodus, he is making excuses, trying to wriggle off the hook, say why he's not the man for the job, send anybody but me. Because now he's ready. Remember, he went back and he supposed that God was going to work through him a certain way. He's killing people. But now, when he's like, I'm sending you. He's like, oh, Lord, you know, I I don't even speak well. What, man, mighty in word and deed? He was a broken man, but in his brokenness, now God would use him. And God used that roundabout way to change Moses, his view of God, his view of himself, and put him in a place where he would trust God like he wouldn't have 40 years previous. Now, don't misunderstand. Moses was totally right in one sense. He was not capable for the job. It wasn't like tending those sheep for 40 years. Now you're really qualified to to lead a million people out of Egypt. No way. That did not qualify him any more than um, watching sheep uh, qualified David to be king over a nation. right? That It was God who qualified him, but God used it. God used that time to do something in Moses that would not have happened any other way. Moses' assessment of his inability and his difficulties were spot on in one sense but he had not factored in God into the equation and that's something we can forget as well we start to look at ourselves and we say well I failed up till now I haven't really accomplished much till now how can you use me here and we don't we don't bring God into the picture but without God what can we do nothing but through Christ we can do all things because he strengthens us God forbid the roundabout way would lead us to doubt God's ability to use us or do all that he has said. As Stephen is giving this historical address to the religious rulers, I wonder if their minds turned to Jesus, through whom Stephen did many signs and wonders. The life of Jesus, it's not a linear path, is it? He didn't come in the way that a king would typically come, through a royal line. He was born to a poor family in Bethlehem. His parents had to flee and go to Egypt for a season because the king wanted him dead and there was a a massacre in Bethlehem. Years later, they moved to Nazareth. He's 30 years old when he begins to preach the kingdom of God, calling disciples, doing signs and wonders. And after three years in ministry, Jesus is arrested. He's betrayed by his own. He's crucified, he's buried in a tomb, carved out of the rock, and it looked like it was over for Jesus. His disciples, they're afraid, they're hiding. They had no idea what was going on. But after three days, he rose from the dead. He overcame sin and death. He appeared to many disciples and ascended to the Father. So we see Stephen, for the sake of Christ, now he's standing before the Sanhedrin, a Hellenist, who has intimate knowledge of the Torah, giving insight that the Torah didn't even say through the Spirit. And in minutes, he would become the first martyr of the church. So how do we make this personal? We've all endured much to come to this place where we are, and God has brought us through. God's revealed himself to us in many ways. He's spoken to us through his word. We are witnesses to his faithfulness and praise the Lord when we forget he is willing to speak to us again. And he hasn't changed the call that he has upon your life. Just like Moses, 40 years in the wilderness, did not change anything as far as what God had determined Moses would do. God has a bright future in store for all of us, even if the way is a roundabout way and a long way. And a way that we don't even know where we're heading exactly. Many of us have languished in the equivalent of those dark dungeons, as Joseph did, under, um, you know, everyone's forgotten about me, maybe even God. We could feel that. Some have found themselves toiling year after year with oppression, as we see the Hebrews were. I mean, they're crying out to God for hundreds of years, and what's happening? Is God hearing them? Well, certainly he's hearing them but the sins of the Amorites was not full. God was doing things all throughout. Or perhaps you found yourself in a foreign land, facing a a daily grind. But may this message be to you, even as the dreams were to Joseph, or the burning bush was to Moses, or the resurrection and ascension of Jesus was to Stephen, God is speaking to you today. He was meeting with you, and he approaches. Will we fear him and tremble before him? Let me encourage you, at the end of the roundabout way, there is a greater revelation of God than we possibly could have had at the beginning. You see that in all these. You go through any roundabout way of the Bible, there's always a greater revelation of God at the end. Think about Elijah, where he's running for his life. He's afraid. But God meets with him and speaks to him in a still, small voice. We'd say, Lord, rend the heavens and come down. He says, rend your hearts, not your garments. Humble yourself before me. Be broken before me. I'll reveal myself to you. Because that's what he wants to do. That's why he's given us his word, so that we can know him. Every pain, every delay, every plot twist in your life, God willing, you can look back upon and say, what was intended for evil... God meant for good. Hasn't God been faithful? He's been faithful to do what we couldn't even see, what we didn't even know. Let's keep trusting him. Amen? Lord, thank you for your word, for the encouragement that comes through reading about the the twists and turns of the Hebrew history. Seeing the way that you called people You spoke to people, you revealed yourself, and yet there were problems and there were difficulties and things they couldn't see that you were doing. And I pray that you would work such faith in us that we see in Abraham, that when you called him to go, he went, because you helped him. And when you, you commanded circumcision, Lord, he followed through with it. And when we are facing difficulties, Lord, may we be as Joseph, who did not lose heart May we continue to be your faithful servants because you are a great God. You are awesome in every way, even when the way is a roundabout way, Lord. I pray that you would reveal yourself to us. When we haven't the strength to lift our heads, Lord, please be the lifter of our head. And when we've lost heart, Lord, in the land of the living, and it seems that death is better for us than life, Lord, I pray that you would show us in your word and you would minister to our spirits to lift us up and to show us that Uh, It's in our our brokenness and humility that your grace is sufficient. Thank you that your strength is made perfect in our weakness. And so we come before you, Lord, as your servants. You are the dreadful God, the great, mighty, awesome God, worthy of all glory, greatly to be feared and reverenced. The one who spoke the heavens into existence, the one who, who has provided every good thing, the one who has promised to save our souls, Lord, we we worship you and we thank you that you have never left us or forsaken us. And even when we wander, you will pursue us because you love us. I pray, Lord, that we would be those faithful servants who stay close to Jesus, who keep on trusting, keep on believing, and keep obeying in Jesus' name. Amen.